Good afternoon. Thank you for participating in the U.S. Department of Labor's Summer 2020 Virtual Roadshow Stakeholder Webinar, Supporting American Workers and Businesses. All phones are now muted. I will unmute the phone line during the question and answer portion of the webinar in about 45 minutes. Please use the chat function and select all participants to submit your questions throughout the webinar. Our subject matter experts will do their best to respond to as many questions as possible in the real time via chat. We will also open the phone line at the beginning of the second segment of this webinar to give you an opportunity to ask questions and to respond to some of the questions received via chat. You will now be joined by Jonathan Wolfson, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy. Good afternoon. My name is Jonathan Wolfson, and I have the privilege of leading the policy shop here at the Department of Labor. Thank you for participating in the Office of the Assistant Secretary Stakeholder Webinar today, part of our department's Summer 2020 Roadshow entitled Supporting America's Workers and Businesses. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Lauren Sweat, who is OSHA's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, and she's going to join us for the second portion of the webinar. But first, let me tell you a little bit about myself and the department. In my role as leader of the policy shop, I am responsible for coordinating the department's interactions and policy process, mainly in the regulatory front. The goals of our office are to advance the policy agenda of the president and of the secretary. In my role, I work with the individuals who are both attorneys, who are policymakers, who are economists, and other parts of the leadership team throughout the Department of Labor to develop the policy and to get it enacted by the administration. Immediately before my time here at the department, I was an attorney in private practice for a number of years. Today I have the privilege of sharing you, with you a little bit more about the great work of the department and the achievements of the department. While I'm doing this, please feel free to use the chat function to speak with some of our subject matter experts who are available to answer your questions. In addition, as we move through this conversation, you will have opportunities to ask myself and Ms. Sweat questions throughout. At this time, I'd like to give you a little bit of an overview of some of the deregulatory efforts and the Office of Compliance Initiatives, which is inside of the Department of Labor's Office of the Assistant Secretary of Policy. And these are ways that we, as the Department of Labor, have been able to support America's businesses both before during and now as we move into reopening the country from COVID. I want to start by talking a little bit about regulatory reform that we have been working on here at the Department of Labor. So our regulatory reform efforts have been pretty extensive over the course of this administration. We have done a number of deregulatory actions. We've taken 11 in fiscal year 2011 or 2019 alone. The cost savings were over $11 billion from fiscal 2017 to 2019. We've provided over $7.9 billion in cost savings in fiscal year 2019 alone. And these cost savings mean that individuals, businesses, those who are trying to hire other individuals are able to have less paperwork, less burdensome rules and regulations that they have to abide by so that they can continue to hire individuals but still do the work that they're doing safely and efficiently. In fiscal 2019, the Department of Labor was ranked the number two most deregulatory agency in the federal government. The Secretary of Labor, Secretary Scalia, talks a lot about how the Department of Labor is an enforcement agency. And as an enforcement agency, our job is to make sure that the law is faithfully executed. But one of the most important components of faithful execution of the law is helping people to know what the law is. If people don't know what they're supposed to do, it's really hard for us to hold them accountable for failure to do so. And so one of the key components of our regulatory reform efforts here is focusing on clarity and consistency. We want the laws to be clear so that individuals who are living with the law know what they're supposed to do. And we want them to be consistent so that you don't have one set of rules if you happen to be working in one type of facility and a different type of rule if you work in a different facility, or one type of rule because your employment situation looks slightly different than someone else's. Obviously, there's going to be some distinctions that have to be made, but as often as possible, we want there to be consistency so that businesses don't have to try to spend precious resources of time and money to figure out what the rules are. One of the 
upsides of enforcement being a priority is that here at the Department of Labor, we've been setting records over the last few years in our enforcement that's actually been done. The Department of Labor has provided significant enforcement. We've had significant recoveries, significant numbers of investigations, and all of these things are focused on the truly bad actors. Because as the Secretary says, if you're going to provide compliance assistance, it makes it that much easier for us to identify who the bad actors are and then to focus our enforcement efforts in those places. But ultimately, compliance assistance is good to help keep the good actors out of trouble because we know that the vast majority of businesses want to follow the law. They want to do the right thing. And so if we are able to provide good, clear compliance assistance, we make it easier for people to follow the law and stay out of trouble. I want to spend a couple minutes highlighting just a couple of the rules that we've been able to finalize in the deregulatory space over the last couple of years. We've finalized a number of rules in the wage and hour space, the overtime rule and the joint employer rule and the fluctuating workweek rule. We've finalized rules in the employee training administration space with the Wagner-Pizer rule and the, uh, we've had the H-2A rule. So we've had a number of rules across a number of agencies. In addition, we had an electronic disclosures rule, which is a really interesting rule that we were able to put in place in the Employee Benefits Security Administration. And that rule provided the opportunity for numerous paper disclosures, which people were defaulted into, to be provided electronically. And this was going to, will provide almost $4 billion in cost savings over the next decade for people not having to spend money printing and mailing documents, which in many cases simply ended up in the recycle bin. Now people are going to receive them electronically, and when they do want to review them, they'll still have them in an archive. In addition to some of our efforts that we've already enacted, the Department of Labor has proposed a number of additional rules. And I just want to give you a couple of highlights. We've proposed the Trade Adjustment Assistance Rule, which provides additional benefits to individuals who need help when they are, their jobs are affected by trade. We've provided temporary rules on H-2A immigration. We have a TIPS rule, which we are still working on under the Fair Labor Standards Act. We have a predetermination notices rule, which OFCCP, our Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs, is working on to help make it a very clear process for people to follow through an investigation if they are a federal contractor. And then we have a new rule that we're working on, which we've proposed on an equal opportunity for faith-based grantees. Faith-based organizations that receive grants from the federal government should be able to provide the benefits to their beneficiaries without having to put a warning label on the services that they're providing. And we want to put them on a level ground with all other service providers. One of the opportunities I have in my role is to lead the Regulatory Reform Task Force. And the Regulatory Reform Task Force job is to help the department to identify rules that are confusing, rules that are inconsistent, what types of regulations and rules do we have in the Department of Labor which make it harder for businesses to hire the people that they want to hire and to grow so that they can offer more and more opportunities to the American people? We try to encourage not only clarity and consistency, but we look for things that are needlessly complicated where we may have five or six forms where one will do. We look for opportunities to provide clear rulemaking instead of sub-regulatory guidance. Rather than the department issuing guidance to tell people what they should or shouldn't be doing, we look for opportunities to codify it as a regulation. In that vein, we are working on, because of the President's executive order last fall, a rule on guidance, where we will explicitly lay out the principles that we will follow for what will and will not be provided to the public as guidance versus what will come out as notice and comment rules. In that vein, one of the principles that the Secretary and the President have promoted is the intent to avoid misusing guidance. We don't want guidance to come out which changes the rules of the game. The goal of guidance is to help people to follow what the rules are, not to actually articulate what the rules ought to be. And so we want to very carefully balance how we help people follow the law using our guidance and compliance assistance for that instead of articulating what their obligations are specifically. And so in October of last year, the president signed an executive order which explicitly required that guidance has to, be, has to come out and disclaim that it has the force or effect of law, that the Department of Labor had to do and all other agencies had to do a retrospective review of the guidance that has come out over the years. We have to make all of our guidance publicly available on a web portal, and we permit the public to offer their comments on the guidance. 
And that guidance portal went live last February at the end of the month. And this is an opportunity that if you ever need to find out whether a piece of guidance is in fact operative, you can search for it on the portal. And if the guidance is not up on that portal, then it is more likely than not no longer operative at the Department of Labor. As I mentioned, compliance assistance is really important at the Department of Labor, and inside the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Policy, we have the Office of Compliance Initiative. And the Office of Compliance Initiative was established in August of 2018 as a place to help centralize compliance assistance. Many of our agencies, OSHA included, have their own compliance assistance offices. And so our, the Office of Compliance Initiatives inside my office does not oversee them, but it provides guidance, best practices, and tries to help all the agencies use the information we've been able to gain across the department and across other agencies to figure out what, in fact, is the best way to help the public understand what their obligations are, help the people who are provided the benefits by our rules and regulations to know what their rights are under the law. And so the Office of Compliance Initiative, as I said, partners with the agencies to help them come up with innovative ways to provide compliance assistance and to complement the enforcement activities of our agencies. We work with employers to help them understand what the rules that they live under are, but we try to help agencies put those things in normal terms that they don't have to wade through layers and layers of legalese, but they have kind of quick, uh, quick guides that they can follow if they want to know what their obligations are under the law. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, the goal of having these compliance initiatives projects is to make it easier for people to follow the law so that we can prevent employment law violations. As we're going to talk to Lauren in a little bit, OSHA wants people to know what the rules are rather than them finding out when OSHA comes in and cites someone for a violation, in part because it keeps workplaces safer for people to know in advance how to do that rather than waiting for us to come in and notice a problem. The Office of Compliance Initiatives has four main areas of focus. We work on outreach, and this is outreach both internal and to the public at large to figure out what are in fact the needs of the regulated community. What do they look for when they receive compliance documents? What would be most helpful for them? Our second goal is innovation. We try to help the agencies come up with unique ways to tell the story of how to comply with the laws that we have. And so as a result of our innovation work, we identify things where we recognize from stakeholders that there are problems in the community and what are the special ways. Maybe it's a new web forum. Maybe it's a unique way of presenting material. We try to innovate and help the agencies come up with those programs. Third is culture. We want our enforcement agencies much to um, much to the point of the secretary from before, of the Department of Labor is an enforcement agency, and we want our agencies to recognize that part of their enforcement role as a cultural matter is that we want to be providing compliance assistance to individuals so that they know how to follow the law. And finally, the Office of Compliance Initiative focuses on analysis. And the, office, the analysis point is to evaluate the compliance assistance materials that we already have and evaluate how usable are they? Are they being used? Are they in places that people will go and actually access them? One of the things that we came up with as a part of the analysis were some com various compliance assistance resources. And so we created employer.gov and worker.gov. And these are one-stop shop websites that individuals can go to to try to figure out their rights and obligations under the law. The reality is that many business owners and many individual workers don't necessarily know whether the question they have is a question for the wage and hour division or a question for OSHA or whether they come and have an amalgamation of multiple agencies of our department. But instead of trying to force them to wade through those rules and regulations agency by agency or code section by code section, employer.gov and worker.gov streamline it into questions that can be asked and that can then direct those individuals to the place where the question can be answered. So what has our Compliance Initiatives Office done? Here's just a quick look at a few things that we've done in the past couple of years. In 2019 alone, we had over 6,000 compliance assistance events. We had over 54,000 attendees at these various events. We released 30 different tools to help people comply with the law. And we produced over 1,300 publications 
working with the agencies to make sure that people understand their rights and obligations under the law. To further the goals of the Office of Compliance Initiatives, in 2020, the office put together a compliance assistance review, and we went across the department and tried to identify areas where we could make our compliance assistance more accessible and understandable, and where we could figure out how to best deliver compliance assistance to our stakeholders. We worked with our six enforcement agencies here at the Department of Labor, and we identified areas where they are excelling, areas where they have growth opportunities. And one of the areas that we at the department realized that we could all work on additional growth was in human-centered design. Human-centered design is a framework that is used to design compliance assistance trying to put, rather than putting ourselves in the, in the regulator's perspective, from the actual user's perspective. So we offered training to a number of individuals across the department to help them understand how to take the materials that they're using and put them in forms that are more usable to the people who will actually be living under the rules and regulations that we have put together. During COVID, the Office of Compliance Initiatives worked with a number of our agencies to help use compliance assistance to advance the Department of Labor's agenda and also to keep workers and businesses safe. First of all, we opened an online dialogue regarding the expanded family and medical leave policy that was enacted by Congress in March. That online dialogue allowed us to take in numerous questions from the regulated community as to what Congress's rules were going to be and the goal of that was that we would then be able to identify those issues because we had a really short time frame to write a regulation that the people were going to have to live under in order to implement Congress's new policies. And so we collected over 1,300 ideas, received over 1,200 comments, and had over 5,000 participants who came to our web event, numerous online dialogues that lasted over a week where we allowed people to provide those questions and then we used those questions provided answers over time so that people would be able to know what the rules were. As a result, we were able to develop an infographic tool to determine eligibility. We also developed employee rights posters, and we realized that we were going to need to produce these posters in multiple languages. These were just some of the ideas we were able to gather from that dialogue. After the Families First Coronavirus regulation was finalized, then we opened a subsequent online dialogue about reopening America's workplaces again. And this online dialogue allowed people to share their concerns and their ideas for things that we as the department and we as the government could be doing to help businesses reopen. We received over 500 ideas shared by the community. We received over 600 comments, and we had almost 2,000 people register to participate in the online dialogue. Some of the ideas that we gathered included ideas to provide safe, accessible, and affordable childcare, ideas that we know are going to be really important as businesses continue to reopen. We had ideas about steps to allow small businesses to safely reopen. And we had ideas about safety, training, and materials on reopening safely, specifically in the education space. So all of these things led us to then be able to develop different posters and other materials. And so the Wage and Hour Division, when they put together their FFCRA regulation, they put together a poster, and the Office of Compliance Initiative helped them to translate it into multiple languages. As OSHA was putting out a number of their compliance documents specific to COVID, we were able to work with their office to make these easier to understand for the regulated community. And so the OSHA office, their compliance initiatives work office, worked with our compliance initiatives team, and we were able to produce all sorts of materials specific to the various safety regulations and rules that were coming out of OSHA over that time. So finally, and this is why some of you are here, I want to just highlight a couple of the resources that we at the department put together specific to the construction and manufacturing spaces. So OSHA put out an alert on guidance for construction workplace. This was put out um, in both English and in Spanish and provides specific guidance to the construction industry. In addition, we have a COVID control and prevention uh, construction work document, which we provide for individuals in the field of construction specifically. 
In addition, the Wage and Hour Division put out a fact sheet on the construction industry standards under the Fair Labor Standards Act, specific to the COVID crisis. OSHA and the CDC put together a number of manufacturing resources. This included resources and videos explaining how to try to align people inside of factories to have them sit safely or work safely, because we know that people, as they return to work, need to have assurances that they can do so safely. And so OSHA has been working with our stakeholders to try to provide that information. Wage and Hour Division likewise put out a manufacturing establishment's guidance document under the Fair Labor Standards Act to provide clarity to employers as they bring their employees back to work. So as we continue to work through our responses to coronavirus, and as we continue to work to deregulate, to allow businesses to have clarity and consistency, to know what the rules are, and to have that consistency allow them to do what they're hoping to do, create jobs, to provide services and goods to their own communities. We need your help. If there are things that are confusing, if there are compliance documents that we put out that don't make sense or that you think could be put together in a better way, we would ask you to help us. Please tell us what's working. Please tell us how we can improve. Feel free to email us at compliance at dol.gov to share your thoughts. This is going to be the only way we really do know how to help you, the regulated community, best abide by the law. I'd like to just remind everyone that you can use the chat function. You can select all participants to ask any questions that you may have. Our subject matter experts are standing by to respond to as many questions as they can in real time via the chat throughout this webinar. I would also like to ask the operator to now open the phone, the phone line to give our participants an opportunity to queue up and ask their questions. We ask that the questions that we receive be focused on the work of OSHA or on occupational safety and health, broadly speaking. So thank you, operator. I will give you a moment to do that. Thank you. Hello again, participants. This is the operator. Please press star 1 and record your name to be placed into the question queue, and you may press star 2 to withdraw that request. Thank you. Thank you, operator. I'd now like to introduce Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary Lauren Sweat. Lauren joined the Occupational Safety and Health Administration on July 24, 2017, Prior to this time, she worked for the United States House of Representatives, where she was a senior policy advisor at the Committee on Education and Workforce for over 15 years. In her role, she's handled workplace safety and health issues for the committee, which included OSHA and the Mine Safety and Health Administration. Lauren and I are going to respond to some questions we received by the phone and a number of the questions that we received from the chat during the last half hour of this webinar. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks Thank for joining you. us. Thanks very much. We're glad to have you here. I know that OSHA has been doing a whole lot in the COVID space. I know that you guys were some of the first actors here in the building to get started on your COVID uh, efforts. Can you talk a little bit about what your agency has been doing to ensure that workers are protected in the COVID era? Yes, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the work of OSHA and how important it is. Um, we put a safety and health topics page on coronavirus um, as early as January 24th, and our folks have been tracking this um, ever since. Uh, I think you know, and our stakeholders know, we've received over 5,000 COVID complaints. And I would also point out we've received also a, almost an equal number of complaints in the safety and health space. So we're aware that um, while some people close their doors, um, mission essential and critical infrastructure folks continued their work. And our folks continued their work as well. Um, so not just our enforcement people, but as we've been talking about our compliance assistance folks. We've put out, um, as of today, over 18 industry-specific guidance documents. We've taken a lot of our information and put it into um, smaller bite-sized pieces, if you will. One of the main things that we um, encourage at OSHA is for folks to start their day with a safety minute or, at this point, a safety moment. So some of our videos are so short, they could be in a safety moment. And um, we've also tried to put all of our information into usable posters, as you talked about. And at least two of our documents are in 14 different languages. And almost everything that we've produced is in English and in Spanish. That's great. Obviously, things are changing really fast. 
everybody is, you know, we're, we're getting lots of questions all the time. We, we're having daily meetings and even more with the secretary and others to talk about coronavirus. And we had the opportunity and the privilege to get to kind of help the country deal with it. But a lot of these workers and businesses are trying to deal with this while still trying to do their normal work. Uh, and OSHA is obviously not the only federal agency that they're getting questions and guidance from. How can workers find the information about what's going on with OSHA and how can businesses find this to know how to best protect their workers? Well, the first thing I think they need to do is make sure that they're looking at legitimate resources online. Um, so OSHA.gov is one of those, um, CDC.gov, our federal partners. And um, we're trying to break that information into as usable segments as we can. I recognize that um, businesses have a challenge of addressing federal um, protocols as well as state and now local public health initiatives. So we're trying to make our documents as easily and accessible as possible so that folks aren't trying to wander through a maze to determine what it is they need to do to protect their workers. But again, I would encourage folks to look at legitimate sources and um, the government is doing everything it can to make sure that what is available is an all-of-government solution and that we're all speaking from the same page so we don't get to what you were talking about with um, a disconnect between what CDC would be saying and what OSHA is saying. So we're really dedicated to working with our federal partners to ensure we're speaking uh, with one voice. Absolutely. Yeah, I know we both had lots of opportunities to be on phone calls and in meetings with lots of folks from a lot of our other federal agency stakeholders, and I know that that's a priority that we have. It's one the Secretary has, and it's one a lot of the other members of the Cabinet also share. And so that's been really important as we try to make sure that we're giving the American people all the information they need and keeping it consistent. What can we expect from OSHA in the coming months as businesses continue to reopen, as states continue to reopen? Well, um, the first thing I want to point to is our return to work guidance. So for folks who haven't been working over the last three months, um, we put out a document last week that's available on our OSHA.gov site, um, specifically in our coronavirus area. And it talks about um, the intersection between what employers um, are planning to do as they bring workers back and how that um, implicates uh, OSHA regulations, if you will. So um, it's a pretty uh, substantial document in nine pages um, with a really great chart at the end that I would suggest everybody look at. Um, and it will give you a really good uh, document to figure out how to plan to bring your workers back safely. So that's one of the things at OSHA we really encourage people to do is create a plan. Um, make the plan work. Look at what your actual job is, how you can adjust anything that you need to to avoid um, coronavirus spread. And, um, you know, with a really good plan, you can protect your workers. Let's talk about guidance for a couple minutes. I know that your office has put out a lot of guidance to try to help people in the coronavirus world. What are the most important actions that you as the administrator of OSHA believe that employers can take to reopen safely? Um, well, as I just said, I think the most important thing is to have a plan. Uh, prior to COVID, we would have encouraged you to have a disaster recovery plan um, if you were dealing with hurricanes or a major storm or some other natural disaster. So in this instance, we're saying you need to look at your plan and add the COVID element to it. Uh, we have a lot of amazing resources on our website um, that can help. Obviously, we have industry-specific. I know the folks on this call are construction and manufacturing. Um, so there are a lot of different things that you can do, but really it's doing a job hazard analysis and, um, you know, it's a, a good opportunity to look at your other safety and health practices, not just related to COVID. So as you're bringing people back, you can make dramatic improvements, um, you know, and this is a, a good time to start thinking about how to make that work. You talk about hazard analysis. I know OSHA does hazard assessments and you talk about those a lot in your guidance. What are some key considerations if you're doing a hazard assessment? I think um, for construction and manufacturing, it's really about is the process um, social distance? Can you build in that six feet? Can you build in a way to ensure that people aren't um, super close together? Uh, it's also high touch areas where people um, might be uh, touching the same item. Um, we talk a little bit about this in retail, but uh, it, it's very important to really take a good hard look at what your folks are doing 
and what adjustments you can make and where adjustments aren't available, uh, what other things that you should be providing. Um, personal protective equipment is certainly one of those things. And uh, we have extensive regulations on this, and our regulations also have um, a lot of really good small business compliance guides. And uh, so there's a lot of information available, and if the information is uh, not what you need or it's not specific enough, we have compliance assistance specialists who can come in and help, or um, I, I think we might talk about this a little bit. Um, if you're a small business, we also have our on-site consultation program, um, which can bring in a person to help you understand what your safety and health needs are. And it's a great program because it has a firewall between our enforcement agency parts. Great. Are there safe alternatives that employers can use when they can't have people social distance very easily? I think they have to do a really good look at what they need to do. Um, so PPE is certainly one of the areas that can help with this. And um, we have a lot in our guidance documents. Um, there's some great um, illustrations I think you talked about. Um, but it really is examining your work practice, figuring out what you can do to build in as much distance as possible and where not, how you use PPE effectively or other kinds of um, things, devices, if you will, that will help protect your workers. Do you have any suggestions for employers that are having a hard time obtaining their equipment, such as masks and respirators? Sure. There's a lot of different um, things people can be using outside of the disposable masks. Um, so we have, for construction specifically, um, our guidance documents talk about, and some of our enforcement documents talk about, some of the reusable um, respirators, elastomeric, pappers. Um, folks can look into what would work effectively for their folks. And reusable is obviously an important aspect um, because the disposable um, are becoming um, a problem and the priority for healthcare to be using those. So there's certainly other technologies available that um, we would encourage people to examine to determine if they can um, use those on their job sites. And then they're not facing the supply chain crunch. That's great. As construction starts to ramp up over the summer, and heat becomes an additional hazard that employees are going to be dealing with. Are there things construction employers should be thinking about as they modify their work practices to address COVID-19? And maybe is there any you know, specific things that a general contractor should be thinking about? Sure. Um, we have a heat um, app, actually, that we've developed with our colleagues at NIOSH. So that would be the first thing I would suggest is to download that. Um, they need to be aware that um, workers need to be acclimatized to the conditions that they're in. Um, they need to provide plenty of breaks, hydration, shade. Um, we actually have a, a whole uh, page on our website under our water rest shade campaign. And um, yes, as it gets hot and folks are working outside, they need to be aware of that and educate their other um, workers and colleagues about signs and symptoms of heat stress. And, uh, it's not just outdoors. Clearly, there are a lot of jobs that have an indoor heat piece. And so if you're working in a kitchen or um, some other potentially manufacturing where there's a lot of heat, you really need to be aware of the health part of this for your workers. And we certainly have resources available um, to help people plan around um, controlling for heat. Great. I know OSHA recently issued a memo on recording cases of COVID-19 uh, on the OSHA 300 laws. Do you have any thoughts for employers who may be confused or concerned about this guidance? Sure. I think the first thing that we want to stress is um, preventing spread means you don't have to record a case. And in the event that you do have to record a case, the whole point of the logs, not just for COVID, but for the entire um, you know, record-keeping standard, is it's a safety and health management tool if you see an increase in something, fill in the blank as to what it is in your um, facility, it's an opportunity for you to look at what is going on and determine if you need to make some change to your work practice. So, um, you know, we certainly are working to help prevent spread and where it's not prevented and you have to record, we're encouraging people to look again at their work practices and what they could be doing to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Let's talk a little bit about cloth masks. In OSHA's rules and regulations, 
do employees and employers, are they required to wear and use cloth masks? Well, I want to make it clear that cloth masks are not personal protective equipment under our regulations. And our return to work guidance discusses cloth masks. Um, but I think you've seen a lot of um, other uh, federal agencies talking about the use of cloth masks um, in addition to face shields. So this is, again, where we're going to encourage the employer to look at their work practice and determine um, if they can be using these uh, and how they should be using them. But where they're supposed to be providing personal protective equipment, a cloth face covering is not a substitute. Okay. And do, ha do employers have to provide the cloth mask? Under our regulations, I don't believe that they do. Um, but they should be looking at what they can be doing uh, to, and what they should be providing their workers to keep them safe. Makes sense. Um, you know, lots of summer jobs are temporary. Lots of summer jobs are contracts. You might be a, a lifeguard at the pool. You know, I think all of us have had those temporary summer jobs at some point in our lives. Uh, as we kind of move into the summer months, what should employers be doing to protect their temporary and contract workers who are potentially coming back to facilities who may not even be their direct employees? Sure. So the most important thing they should be doing is safety training for those um, employees. If you're a lifeguard, you clearly have some credential there. Um, but um, for folks who are new to your work site or new to the type of work that you're doing, um, safety training is very important. And in some of our regulations, we have these specific requirements. Um, but what we are always talking about is, again, to the safety minute or the safety moment, um, to remind people almost daily that they have a, an obligation to keep their workers safe, and uh, they have an obligation to inform their workers what the hazards are and how to avoid them. I just want to remind folks on the phone, if you have a question and would like to be placed in the queue, please press star 1 so you can ask a live question. Uh, I have a couple more questions for you before okay. we get to get to the questions the audience is asking. But uh, does OSHA have services? I think you mentioned it earlier, the services that you provide for small businesses. If, if I'm a small business owner and I'm just trying to figure out, does this face shield work or is this the right way to reconfigure my cubicle, is there someone at OSHA they can call? Yes. Um, you can always call 800-321-OSHA and um, there will be a compliance assistance specialist who can uh, answer your questions. If you're a small business and you're looking for other safety and health um, assistance, the on-site consultation program is available in all 50 states, and it's a great way to um, dramatically improve your safety and health program, um, especially small businesses who may not have a fleet of industrial hygienists like I do uh, to help with the work. And so um, there's also other programs for uh, small businesses, especially our SHARP program, recognizes achievements for small businesses. And um, there's information on our webpage about that as well. But we've seen a lot of small business really dedicate themselves to um, safety and health and putting in a safety and health management program. And they can go years and decades without a recordable incident because of the way they've approached safety and health on the job site. That's great. Let's talk for a couple minutes about things that are not COVID. I know that uh, OSHA has a safe and sound week that you celebrate every year. What are your plans for 2020 with kind of the unique circumstances that we're facing this year? Sure. Um, safe and sound week is in August this year. I don't think I'm giving anything away, but it's coming. Um, the, one of the most important aspects of um, this is that it's been um, almost virtual for the last couple of years. Um, so our folks are constantly looking and putting out information on Safe and Sound about safety and health management systems and what employers and employees can be doing. Uh, they have a lot of information about the find and fix of hazards. It's a great opportunity to get your workers involved in the safety uh, of your work site. And um, as we go forward with Safe and Sound, I really would encourage people to look at the uh, information that we have and uh, if folks want to participate, it's really um, providing us information on Twitter about what you've done to improve the safety and health in your job site and a lot of innovative ways of doing that. So um, it's a great opportunity to share information between businesses and trade associations. And um, I hope folks will uh, continue to, to work on that. Uh, we do have a safe and sound page, and um, it's, it's a really excellent opportunity for 
um, employers and workers to, to get together and talk about how to make the workplace safer. As people are coming back to work, if people, if workers identify concerns that they have, can you talk a little bit about what workers should do or some tips you might have for employers when their workers do bring up any safety concerns that they might have? Sure. Well, the first thing they should do is address them. <laughs> and so um, when you have a non-confrontational environment about safety, then um, workers feel that they can bring these concerns to management, and that's really the environment that we want people to operate in. Where um, an employer is not doing that, we certainly have the whistleblower program, and whistleblowers can call us if they have safety and health concerns and have been retaliated against for expressing those. I think the Secretary has made it very clear we will not uh, tolerate retaliation, and um, our caseload in the whistleblower space on COVID is over 1,000 complaints at this point. Um, and we've worked very hard to work to close some of these. And we have some pretty amazing stories about whistleblower investigators who've called employers and employers recognizing that their safety culture was not what it needed to be and making true adjustments to how they approach safety. And so um, it's, it's very challenging to be a whistleblower investigator and to be a whistleblower. Nobody wants to be in that position. So if we can have a non-confrontational uh, problem on the front end, we'll have a much better safety culture in the end. Great. Last, um, I just want to talk a little bit. I know that states are across the board have been working to come up with their reopening plans. And can you talk a little bit about how OSHA does or doesn't get involved in states' decisions to reopen or specific safety standards that states want to issue? Sure. Um, well, we wouldn't interfere with a state in what they're trying to do. But they can certainly look at our resources, and um, they should be looking at CDC resources to figure out how to safely reopen. And um, I think our return to work guidance would be an excellent um, start for some folks to, to examine. And um, you know, we're, we have people in um, almost every state, and so those folks could certainly call our people and talk about how are we going to do this and how are we going to do it safely? And we can provide resources and other, um, you know, we have really good professionals who can help walk people through that. Well, thanks, Lauren. This, is, this has been really helpful for, I hope, a lot of our audience members, and I know I'm even learning stuff, too. Okay. Uh, so it's been good. I think we've got some questions that are coming in from the phone and some from uh, our chat. Let me just read you one question that we got from one of our uh, chat folks, and then we'll jump onto the phone for a okay. question. So someone asked, how can they determine if a COVID case was contracted at work, and how is OSHA going to take that into consideration regarding uh, the actual recording of a COVID case? Sure. So I would encourage folks to look at our um, record-keeping guidance uh, and enforcement discretion uh, memo that is on the website. But really, it is for the employer to determine work-relatedness. And uh, we have some uh, decision trees, if you will, in that guidance document to help people understand um, how they can determine if it's work-related. But it is um, really the employer's uh, responsibility to determine that and record as appropriate. Great. Operator, do we have a question on the phone? Yes, we have a question or a comment coming from Jonathan Brewer from Amway Oil Company. Your line is open. Jonathan, please check your mute feature. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, yeah, so my question is surrounding um, notification stance. So from, from a close contact perspective, if someone is wearing a face covering and they come in contact with another individual who tests positive for COVID-19 and they also has a, have a face covering or a mask, from a notification standpoint, is that still considered close contact per se? Um, I'm going to uh, defer this one to CDC because I think the CDC folks uh, would be the most appropriate to discuss um, what they deem close contact. And um, I hate to uh, do that to you because there's nobody from CDC here to answer the question, uh, but I don't think that that's um, specifically in the OSHA lane. Okay, so thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks. 
So another question that we just received is, what should an employer do if they have employees that are concerned about returning to work? Well, I think an employer needs to um, talk to their workers about what their plan is. Um, so first step, obviously, is to have a plan and explain what their plan is um, to bring folks back uh, safely. And um, if they aren't able to convince their workers of that, I, I think there's um, some other work that needs to be done there. Uh, but really, it's um, demonstrating that you have a plan and um, how you're going to prevent the spread within your workplace. Operator, do we have another question? And I'm currently showing no further questions from the phones at this time. Again, as a reminder, that's star one. Make sure and unmute your phone and record your name. Again, that's star one. And to remove that request, it is star two. And we are standing by. Well, I've got one other question from the chat. And someone asked if OSHA is planning to investigate complaints of employers who aren't currently following the OSHA guidelines. Uh, OSHA has received almost 6,000 complaints at this point, and we have investigated every single one or are in the process of investigating them. So, yes, um, if you have a complaint specifically, um, there's multiple ways to file that, and the individual can remain anonymous. Um, but it's 800-321-OSHA on the phone. You can go to OSHA.gov, and there's a button to file a complaint. You can do that electronically. And um, we just need to know where the facility is in order to um, go and, and investigate if there are um, concerns and problems about the way a company is operating. Can you talk just a little bit about what happened? What, what would someone expect to get when they call that the, the OSHA phone number? What if I'm if I'm a worker and I'm concerned about something going on at my workplace? What what's that experience like? Um, well, hopefully it's the most professional you're going to get, but um, they're going to need to know where the facility is and um, what the concern is. And uh, we have uh, actually a video on our uh, webpage that talks about what an OSHA inspection looks like. So, um, you know, we come, our folks present their credentials, explain why they're there. There's a series of things that we look at. Your OSHA log uh, for record keeping is uh, obviously one of them. Depending on the kind of facility you are, there's other paperwork that you have to maintain. The inspector will do a walk around, and the inspector often interviews um, workers. Those uh, interviews should be um, confidential. Management should not be participating in them. So uh, there's multiple opportunities for workers to express their concern, um, and again, confidentially. Uh, and so it shouldn't be um, a scary situation, um, but we, we do expect people to, um, you know, to be able to tell us what exactly they think is going on in a, in a work site. Great. We got another question on the chat, and someone wanted to know, kind of the interaction between OSHA guidance and state uh, health department guidance. And does, their question, I think, was whether or not individuals have to comply with both, or does ours supersede it? Do we have some sort of enforcement oversight of the state uh, guidance that actually exists? Um, well, we would not have oversight of the state uh, guidance, but it should not be in opposition to what OSHA is requiring. Um, if there is a situation where that occurs, I hope someone will be calling us because we need to go to the state and um, figure out how to adjudicate that problem. Uh, but really, our um, regulations shouldn't be in conflict. Uh, and the state health authorities are doing uh, different things than what we're doing. So they're doing more contact tracing, trying to determine how spread is occurring, whereas our regulations are designed to help prevent um, folks from coming in contact with any safety and health uh, concerns. Great. Operator, do we have any additional questions on the line? Yes, and we do have a, well, we have questions, but we're waiting for the questions to come up into the queue. One moment, please. Not a problem at all. Lauren, we've had opportunities to work a lot on the guidance as it's come out, and we started kind of, as you mentioned at the beginning, working back in January on this. Can you give uh, the participants just a little picture of kind of how we have worked together, not just in this building, but with our federal partners to develop a lot of guidance that we've had to issue very quickly? Sure. 
Uh, it's been a very amazingly uh, quick process given what's been going on. Um, as I said earlier, we had about 18 industry-specific guidance documents that OSHA alone has been able to put out in addition to all of the other compliance assistance materials that we have. Um, but to ensure that we're speaking as one voice of the government, um, all of our materials gone through um, the Office of Management and Budget to make sure that other federal agencies can weigh in on what we're saying. And um, I think it's really bolstered the strength of the documents to make sure that um, we're uh, talking about our mission, um, but also making sure that we're not in conflict with other federal partners. And um, so the coordination of effort has been um, probably unprecedented at this point to make sure that the documents that we have get out in a timely fashion and with the best available information that's um, you know, readily for workers and employers. It's been pretty amazing. The number of documents that we've both produced and been part of the team's reviewing, uh, you know, I know my email and your emails are full all, all day, yes. night, weekends, <laughs> holidays. It doesn't matter what it is. We've been working around the clock to put these together. And, I, you know, I'll just say, you know, and I know this is true of your staff, my staff, we both are very privileged to have great staff who have worked tirelessly through this time, and we know it's a unique time for all of them given kind of the teleworking conditions and not being physically together where it's harder sometimes to have conversations and people have got childcare and other health issues and just the amount of work that our teams have done has been astonishing, but it definitely has been exciting to see everyone working together on it. Yeah, I, I would say um, just for the OSHA folks, uh, they've done amazing work in very challenging situations. Um, they've been in very challenging situations throughout the history of the agency, uh, and they always step up, whether it's a hurricane, 9-11, um, natural disasters, they're always there. And um, I don't think anybody's getting enough credit within the agency or um, maybe the federal government uh, as a whole of all the work that's being done. And um, it, it's really government service is an honor, and our folks have demonstrated that. Absolutely. We just got a question about vacation season and employees taking vacation. <laughs> uh, do, do we have any guidance on how to manage employees who take leisure travel and potential for them potentially coming into contact with COVID or any other illness while they're gone? Um, I would love to say that this is a wage and hour division question because it's going to uh, talk about um, certain kinds of leave and um, whether people need to um, self-isolate. Um, I know that uh, our guidance documents talk about um, if you have um, sick workers, you should encourage them to stay home and have policies that address that. Um, but as far as isolating, uh, quarantining, um, I think some of that's going to fall within uh, wage and hour, and maybe we should just call um, Administrator Stanton to come down quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure they have some other information on the wage and hour uh, website to address some of that. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that there, there's plenty of guidance and rules and regulations about what they have to do, and I think also our sister agency, the EEOC, has some specific things, which I know were discussed a lot in the COVID space because there are some special things you have to do, even if you have uh, employees who you might believe are at risk, that, that you are not allowed to kind of identify them as such. They have to self-identify. Uh, there's another question about whether OSHA plans to offer any sort of class or training for pandemic officers. Um, well, interestingly, uh, we do have a lot of training and education available, and um, our, uh, our uh, OTI folks, which is our uh, technical institute, and the education centers, which are also available um, in all 50 states, have a lot of information um, that they can share. Uh, one of the things that we have um, uh, currently open is our Harwood grant. Um, the uh, folks who would file for that, would, it would be July 20th is the deadline. Um, but we have a specific category for COVID-19 training. And so if folks have uh, material that they think would meet that, I certainly would encourage folks to um, apply for our grants. But um, yes, I think as we go forward, there'll be more information, more training and education available to um, everyone. Another question we just received was, does OSHA have a plan to expand its voluntary compliance program? Well, 
there's certainly a lot of opportunity to apply for um, voluntary protection program. And um, if, if people are interested, it, they can go to our website and uh, determine you know, the application and, and how to go forward. Um, so yes, I would say all of those things are available to employers who want to do more than the minimum. Um, and, and we certainly would encourage people to do that. And um, you know, so we have VPP, we have SHARP, which is specifically small businesses. Um, yeah, all of that is um, continually running uh, even through this very interesting, challenging time. Absolutely. Um, one one last question that I personally had. I think that uh, I think that a lot of people feel like they don't know what makes OSHA work, right? Like a lot of the workers, they don't understand kind of what are we doing on a daily basis here at the Department of Labor as part of OSHA. Can you just give folks, because we have some people participating who, the people who are leading the companies, they might know because they have their safety and health officers, but you know, the only time a lot of workers interact with OSHA is when an inspector shows up. Can you give people just a little bit of a vision of the expanse of what OSHA is doing kind of on a daily basis, even if COVID had never happened? Sure. Um, so I like to say we do um, three things, enforcement being the cornerstone of our activity, uh, but we have compliance assistance specialists, and then we have our training and education folks. Um, so our compliance assistance specialists are available. Uh, they go out on a regular basis. They can do talks to specific um, groups. And uh, even in the COVID phase, we've done about 5,000 compliance assistance activities. And uh, so those folks are also available to help answer questions um, before the enforcement person shows up is what I like to talk about. So proactive safety is um, a very key element of what we're trying to get people to look at. And then we have our training and education um, branch. And so we have um, things that are available on our website. We have our 10 and 30 hour classes, which are often uh, taught through our Occupational Training Institute education centers. Again, those are available um, in all 50 states. And we have um, the training classes on our website, so if people are looking for something close to them, uh, they, can, they can do that. So, yeah, on a daily basis, we're doing a lot of things um, that people uh, may or may not see. So, obviously, the most visible is our enforcement folks. And, um, and then again, a lot of our compliance assistance people are pretty visible, and they're available to come and, and talk through issues and um, speak to groups uh, to talk about how to address safety and health um, throughout the industries that we address. Great. We just got another question on the chat, and someone asked if OSHA is planning to give employers a grace period for annual or required retraining courses that may have been delayed due to COVID-19. We have a memo addressing some of these issues um, with, a, I wouldn't call it a grace period, um, but I would say that, um, that there were definitely early on um, some folks that had um, said the audiologists, um, the spirometry people, that they were not bringing folks on site to um, do some of the uh, medical surveillance that needed to happen or some of the other training. So um, I, I would encourage people to look at our enforcement discretion memo as to what that is and how to um, address that when you get back to full capacity. And um, I would say document what you're doing and document what your plan is in the event that an OSHA inspector arrives on site. Great. Well, I think that may be all the questions. I'm not sure if we had any additional questions coming from the chat or from uh, the phone. I will give it one more second. But if not, we will. Yes, we, we do have a question or comment from the phones. And again, as a reminder, that was star one. And record your name. And we have a question or comment coming from Lisa Aguilar from NHS, Inc. Your line is open. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. I'm just wondering if we had, or if any employer has an employee who calls in sick with a fever of 101.7, um, they go to get tested and everything. What is the process that the company needs to do at that point? Do they do anything or are, you know, we're just assuming it's just a fever? How do we handle that? Um, yeah, I think initially you have to um, follow your company's um, 
sick leave policy. Uh, the, the real question, I guess, is um, what happens if they come back and they test positive, right? Um, right. So I, I think um, that's when you have to uh, examine um, is, is it a work-related issue? And again, our um, our memo talks a little bit about, well, a lot of a bit, about what um, employers should be doing related to um, a COVID positive test and whether or not it should be recorded. Um, but I think if there's some uh, belief that that person has an elevated temperature and has been exposed to COVID, um, you all need to have a discussion about how that individual um, may or may not come back to the office. And that's going to be, you know, uh, really based on some of your sick leave policies. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, everyone. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us. And Lauren, thank you for being here and chatting with us. I know I learned some things, and I hope that our participants did as well. I know we covered a lot of ground, but uh, I think it was a very valuable experience for everybody. And you know, as I said at the beginning, if you have any questions, if you need any information, you know, you can call OSHA if you have OSHA-specific questions, if you have ideas or thoughts about how the Department of Labor can be better providing compliance assistance to you as the users of that material, don't hesitate to contact us at compliance at dol.gov. And I just would like to invite you to join us next week. Next week on Tuesday, I'll be doing another one of these webinars with the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Employee Training Administration, Amy Simon. We're going to be focusing on food service, hospitality, and the retail industry. Don't forget to visit employer.gov or worker.gov if you have questions. And as we noted, OSHA and DOL websites are really good places to find information. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and be healthy. Thanks. Thank you. That concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may disconnect at this time.